Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. On February 4, 2004, a sophomore at Harvard University by the name of Mark Zuckerberg launched the Facebook. At the time, the social networking website was limited to only students at Harvard. And while other social networking platforms like MySpace and Friendster predated the launch of Facebook, it was that February day on the Harvard campus that the age of social media was truly born. Today, Facebook boasts 2.5 billion active users, is available in 111 languages, and is the fourth most trafficked website in the world. From there, other platforms followed. Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Pinterest, and, most recently, TikTok. While these platforms were launched with a promise of connecting the entire world, today, they also have a reputation for hate, animosity, vitriol, conspiracy-mongering, outrage mobs, and a litany of other negative societal impacts. Does social media have to be this way, or can we be better? Today, I talk with Daniel Darling, Senior Vice President for Communications at National Religious Broadcasters, and the author of the new book, Away With Words, about the promise of social media, where it may have gone wrong, what our social media habits say about us, and how we can use our online conversations for good. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Daniel Darling, who is the Senior Vice President for Communications at National Religious Broadcasters. For six years, he served as Vice President for Communications for the ERLC, an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest Protestant denomination. Dan is a best-selling author of several books, including Teen People of the Bible, Crash Course, I Faith, Real, Activist Faith, The Original Jesus, The Dignity Revolution, and The Characters of Christmas. He is also the author of the new book, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. Dan Darling, welcome to Act in Line. Well, it's great to be here. It's an honor to be on Act in Line. Uh, I love what you guys are doing here. Huge fan of the Acton Institute and use your materials often. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I want to ask you for this new book, uh, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. What led you to want to write this book? So two things, really. Um, <clears throat> first, I've, I've always had a love of words. So um, ever since I was a kid, I, I, I was able to read at an early age, like four, I guess, my mom says. <laughs> and so I, our family did not have a television, so we either read or listened to the radio. I've always loved words. We got three newspapers every day at our house, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Daily Herald. And I devoured those things every day, and especially on Sundays when it was just like a feast with that big, thick Sunday paper that people who are in their 20s probably don't know what that is. But um, 
and and I always was a reader. I loved words. And then I've been a writer most of my life, regardless of what job I have. You know, I had a junior high teacher who inspired me and, and just read some of my uh, assignments in English uh, composition and just said, Dan, I think you, you know, I think you got a, a gift here. You should pursue it, which, you know, to me, an awkward middle school kid, it's like, hey, there's actually something I can do, something I'm actually good at. So I pursued that. Uh, so whether I've been, you know, working in communications for organizations, which I've done, or if I, when I was pastoring or hosting a podcast or doing radio um, or writing, I've always loved words. I love people who are gifted at putting words together and I love doing that myself. So that, that that's the, the one side of it. And I, and I do think, you know, as a Christian, Christianity is a religion of words uh, from, you know, in the, in the Genesis, God uh, spoke the world into existence, Bible says, and uh, we have, you know, the, the word of God, the, the Bible is the word of God. Uh, literature is really important for Christians, you know, whether it's the classics or, you know, the church fathers or just, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a, it's a religion of, of words and ideas. And then um, there's a lot the Bible says about the way our, the shape of our words, that it's not just important to be on the right side of, of an issue, but actually the words we, 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 uh, we use matter. So that's the kind of the, big overarching reason. And then secondly, uh, I've always, you know, the last couple of years I've been a little bit just thinking about where we are in this digital age, right? We're, we're in an age of communication where it's so easy to communicate, um, you know, with a few uh, taps of my thumb or strokes on the keyboard, I can communicate to a vast audience and you can push stuff out there. It's never been easier to communicate. Um, and so, uh, how, how should we steward this responsibility? How should we live in this age as Christians who care about the shape of our words? And so those are the kind of the two motivations I really I think that led me to write it. So social media communication, I, I remember when Facebook really first came online, when Twitter first became a thing, um, and at the dawn of this current digital age that we are, that we're all in, the promise seemed to be that this is this incredible tool that is going to bring the world together in communication. I could talk to someone who's on the other side of the planet just as easily as I could talk to someone who is next door to me. It doesn't strike me that that is what has transpired. Do, what do you think went wrong in that promise that has led to the current perception of conversation online, which is that it's the perception Twitter has, that it's more vitriol and dunking on other people mm -hmm. than it is a positive conversation the way that two people sitting across a table face to face would have one? Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I remember when social media first started – I remember um, the promise of it, right? Facebook, it's like, we're going to unite the world, bring the world together, Twitter. Um, and I remember talking to writers, you know, 15 years ago or 12 years ago, whenever that was, and saying, you got to be on social media. You can connect with so many people. It's how you can get your message out. And honestly, I have a, I have a lot to, I owe a lot to the internet, the digital age. I don't know if my work would have been discovered uh, in any meaningful sense. It were it not for social media and the relationships I've built and the ability to push out your 
ideas through blogging or through writing for different places. Uh, I've also made connections and I have deep friendships with people that I don't think I would have met. Uh, I've, I've been exposed to organizations and ministries and ideas. I mean, the Acton Institute. I think I knew the Acton Institute existed before the digital world, but I don't know because I, you know, I started following Joe Carter back in the day. You know, I think Joe Carter invented the internet with Al Gore, basically. <laughs> um, and Joe was part of Acton. So I'm reading Acton. I'm like, man, this is great stuff. So all that stuff formed me, you know, and there was so much promise, but it does seem there's been an inflection point to where now when you, when you mention the word social media, it immediately conjures up negative thoughts, right? When someone brings it into a conversation. And I do think, you know, the platforms that we thought were going to bring the world together are now, they, they kind of incentivize uh, vitriol, incentivize incivility. And uh, there are some real issues with just kind of the way that they can create echo chambers and misinformation. Um, but I'm also not... Um, down on technology and social media. I mean, this is the way that people are communicating. Uh, we are in a digital age. We're not going to go back to the 1950s. We're not going to suddenly become Amish. So the question is, how do we manage this well? How do we do this well? Mm -hmm. Why Why do you think it incentivizes those things? So I, I come to this conversation a bit with a little you know, baggage that I am a, I've spent most of my professional career building digital communities. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things I've come to realize in the last several years is how digital communities have their purpose and they can be great for some things, but they are largely poor replacements for actual community. So what ends up transpiring in actual community is if you say, let's take the case of someone says something racist, a friend will take them aside and they say, you know, hey, that isn't cool. Don't do that. Whereas now what happens when somebody says something like that in a in the social media world, you get piling on from two different sides. One side jumps in and wants to excommunicate that person from public life entirely forever. Mm -hmm. And you get another side of people jumping in saying, no, you're right. Go with that. What, what is it about social media that seems to incentivize these more base expressions of our human nature? Well, I think it's just so easy. I think you can skip the kind of, you know, the way that our, the way that our conversations are communicated now is through mediums through screens and mediums and platforms so that we're, we're not getting the face-to-face -face contact with people. So it's a little bit removed. And so it's easy to kind of remove the humanity uh, from our conversation. We can forget that the person we're interacting with on the other side, uh, side of Twitter or the person we're about to crush or own or whatever is a, a human being. Mm -hmm. And they're not the sum total of their bad opinions or ideas. They're a whole human being with a family and with ideas and dreams. And we forget that because it's mediated that way. I also think it's easy. You know, there's no filter. I mean, look, there's always been polemics and there's always been incivility. If you, if you read the history of this country, some of the early presidential races were nasty. Newspaper editorials flying back and forth. So this is not the first time there's been incivility, but it's just easier. If the average person wanted to speak their mind before like – 20, 30 years ago, you would write a letter to the editor, the editors. And so you'd sit down and do it and you'd probably edit it so that it wasn't, it was fairly coherent. 
then you'd send it. The editor would get it. They'd say, okay, is this tone good or is it not? And then, you know, then you had comment sections and on social media. So I think that makes it. Um, I think the other thing is Twitter especially incentivizes um, – the quote tweet was a big invention that we kind of didn't think through. But it incentivizes a kind of mob justice, a mob mentality where I can – I can join a mob that's crushing somebody and owning somebody uh, in a way that we don't often actually think about what we're doing. And today on social, there's just a, a narrative of I've got to be on the right side. I've got to be seen as being on the right side. Uh, you know, here's the bad people. Here's the good people. I'm with the good people. So whatever it takes, if that means I have to crush this person or I have to do this, whatever. I, I think that that is kind of the the incentive. But I want to say it doesn't have to be that way. And like you, I've spent a lot of my time in the last decade, you know, doing online things. You know, creating for organizations and communities, digital properties and digital ideas. I've spent a lot of time with my own writings and stuff communicating. And it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous too when we say things like social media is really bad. Um, I want to say, well, social media is us. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's me, it's you, it's people. And so if social media is toxic, maybe it's because we're we are creating toxic content and we don't have to do that. You know, we, we can push back and be part of, not to sound Pollyannish, but we can be part of the good part of social media, of connecting with each other and lifting up good ideas and speaking out against things that are bad, but doing it in a way that's redemptive. I, I think you're absolutely right that it's, you know, it, in the same way people talk about collective government action, that like the government does X and the government doesn't do X, people do X. Um, in, social, you know, in the social media world, you know, social media can't be toxic without individual people being toxic. But what I'm curious about is you probably know a person like this as well. I certainly have in my past where there's someone I know in real life. And when I'm with them in real life, they are just incredibly nice and kind and fun and wonderful to be around. And then I go look at their Twitter feed and it is just vitriolic and, and hateful. There seems to be something about these mediums of expression that allow people to be like that in a way that I can't come up with a parallel in real life that, you know, someone is in one way and people know them in a completely different one. There are people like that. And I, I'm always curious as to why that exists. You know, I've, I've had, I've noticed the same thing, Eric. I mean, it's, it's uncanny that some of the kind, like some of the people who are the nastiest online and it, it doesn't matter what ideology, left, right, center, you know, there's nasty people in all camps and we, we've seen them all. Some of the nastiest people online I've met, not all of them, but I've met a few, you know, a few and they're meek and mild and kind and nice and sweet. And it's a weird phenomenon. And I think what's happening is, you know, there's a couple of things happening. One, there's a performative aspect to all of this. And I, I tweeted this the other day, but I'm convinced some of the reason for the hate that we see online is because people have made politics, their religion and it politics makes for a very poor religion. 
But a lot of it, I suspect, is performative. That people really aren't, don't have those bad takes and bad ideas, but it's a performance. That I have to do this in order to get affirmation for my tribe or it's part of just an overall plan. Um, Secondly, there's also an opportunity for us to curate a version of ourselves online that we feel makes up for what something that lacks in real life. So if you were always a shy person, someone who was introverted or who was never seen as being very tough or courageous, well, you can be behind a keyboard and you can curate that version of that version of yourself. And honestly, I think, and it's not, that's not the only way people do that. I think there's a way to do this, for instance, on Instagram to curate a version of me as a super dad or moms as a super mom or, you know, kind of an Instagram influencer lifestyle of like you can curate a version of yourself that you feel is lacking in real life. And I think the, the solution to this is to understand who you really are and be at peace with who you are. You know, as a Christian, I would say the Christian gospel says that God loves us for, he sees the real version of us and he loves the real version of us, not the one that we project online. And so if you're known by God and you know God, you are free to be your real self. And so I do think there's a performative aspect and a curating a version of ourselves that we feel will get affirmation from the right tribes and the right group. Does does that make sense? It it does. Um, I remember interviewing Kevin Williamson a while back where he made a comment about what Twitter is, is it's an attention economy. Mm. And you agree to give other people attention in exchange for those people giving attention to you. Yes. And as you talked about the performative aspect part of it, I'm reminded, I don't know if you've read um, Yuval Levin's most recent book, A Time to Build, but his when he identifies the problem that we're having in failing institutions in our society, it's that institutions are no longer existing for the purpose that they're supposed to, which is that they're supposed to form us as human beings. You know, the, whether it's schools or churches or companies, they are supposed to form us as people and lead us to ask the question, given my role here, what should I do? But they've stopped being that, and they've become these platforms on which people stand and perform. Mm. I think the best examples of this right now are in Congress, where you have people who are in Congress complaining about what is going on, tweeting about what is going on, going on TV news saying, complaining about what's going on, Mm. as if that their role in Congress doesn't facilitate an opportunity for them to change that if they wanted to. We're performing rather than actually acting as we should in given the roles that we should have within these institutions. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I, and I am just ashamed to admit, I have not read that book, uh, but all my friends are telling me I need to read it. Like, you know, John Ward and some others are like, you got to read this book. And what you just, and the funny thing is I've read enough articles about it. I probably have enough Absorbed enough content, but mm-hmm. Yuval is exactly right. Uh, and that, that is our institutions used to shape and form us. Uh, and, you know, co- like you said, Congress is a perfect example that um, you get elected to Congress, not necessarily so that you can, you know, be in that institution and work toward, you know, good legislation that helps the country or even to represent your constituents. But as, as a kind of platform so that you can run for president or you could just get in front of the TV cameras and, and get a nice TV job or just kind of be a, be a pundit, uh, 
Um, I think this is also true in a lot of our other institutions. Uh, you know, in in the evangelical world, you see it. You see that as well, where um, young people coming out of seminary want to immediately be a thing. They want a book contract. They want to be a thing. And the easiest way to be a thing is to go on Twitter and be provocative. And I see this across the spectrum, whether it's, yeah, I'm going to be the, a right-wing provocateur and get attaboys. I'm going to be a critic. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of have the, I grew up evangelical and now I'm hating on it, which is a great career path right now. <laughs> you know, I see this across the spectrum instead of being parts of institutions and letting them form us. And I think this is a real, real issue. Uh, part of the reason is there's a real cynicism today about institutions because across the board in the last several decades, institutions have failed us from the church, from the government, from the banking industry, financial industry, from, you know, uh, the media, People are just trusting institutions as low. And I'm afraid that people have lost their faith in what institutions can do. But what I want to tell folks is that it is through institutions that the most change happens and being formed by them. I do think you see a divide though. And I think you see some people going in and being willing to be the institutionalist and other people kind of want to use it as a platform. Um, so you see some legislators get elected and say, I'm just going to work here and get stuff done. I don't care if I'm a thing, if I'm on TV uh, or pastors going to their church and just say, I'm going to faithfully pastor this church. I don't care if I'm get a best-selling book. I don't care if I'm this or that. Um, but I think you, you know, social media flattens that to where rather than rising through the normal channels and ranks of, of getting, of advancing, you can shortcut some of that and you can become a thing. This is, this is the true, even with publishing where, you can and writing, you can really develop your writing and and skills through writing a lot and practice and and having editors look at your stuff and critique it and make you better and kind of earning your stripes that way. Or you can go online and become a provocateur. You can self-publish your stuff and avoid the gatekeepers. So I do think this generation, Eric, has to be institutionalists. We need, we need to reform key institutions and, we, and, and re-energize key institutions, and we need to build new ones. So I'm with you all on that. The leveling effect that you talked about with social media there, you, know, you used to say about the news that it was the first draft of history. Um, now it seems the first draft of history is written, by, uh, is written online. Mm. Um, how much of this kind of leveling effect, what do you, I mean, what do you think that that leveling effect is, is having on society that, um, what we, you talked about earlier with the way we can kind of curate our lives. We can also curate what we read and it can read to this epistemic closure problem where we can only hear the voices we want to hear. Mm. We can only read the things that we want to read. And, you know, frankly speaking, the algorithms that guide these platforms really do work that way. It finds out what you like and what you're interested in, and it feeds you more and more of that material. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the nearness and the farness of that problem is, is both a thing. So when you talk about the epistemic closure um, or confirmation bias, I think it's a real issue. There's a lot being made right now, particularly on 
Twitter and among journalists and among some of the mainstream news organizations about how much of a echo chamber Facebook can be, particularly for conservatives. Um, you know, and I think there's some truth to that, right? That you know, you you can get all your news from conservative sources on Facebook. But what I think all these people don't realize is they too have a very similar echo chamber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Twitter is the same thing. Uh, if you're constantly catechized by the mainstream news and by the, the kind of the narratives that drive that and that drive Twitter, it's the same. It, it has the same confirmation bias, the same resistance to facts, the same kind of narrative. And I think it's not helpful in a society when, when one event happens and there's two different versions of it. Um, in terms of writing history, I'm, you know, I am nervous about that. Uh, but I do think, you know, good historians will, you know, one thing I like about history, and in fact, reading history is like my hobby, essentially. I read biographies of American history. And one of my rules is I refuse to read, like I love reading presidential history. I refuse to read any books about the current president or the current administration or the current era, like when it's happening. Because you're in the thick of it, the fog of war. I like reading stuff after it's already happened, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, you know, and you do see with the march of history, then people look back that good historians are able to go back and really piece together what really happened, right? So you even see this with um, the Clinton scandal in the 90s, right? That at the time there were two narratives there, like, the mainstream media and press said it was just these Republicans out to get Bill Clinton. The Republicans saying, here's a, here's a president that abuses power. They're both kind of right a little bit. Now, when you go ahead 20, 30 years and you read recaps, even by liberals, right? Like Slate's um, Slow Burn podcast was not that complimentary of Bill Clinton. And the history is being written about the 90s. You know, so I do think Good historians are able to go back and kind of tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question. Like, but for me, I, I there's all kinds of books about the Trump administration. And I just won't read them because it's happening right now. I will read books about you know, the Bush administration. I'll read books going you know, way back into World War II and beyond that because it's you know, time has and, and you also see with history that there's corrections, right? So one of my favorite presidents, I think he's one of the most underrated presidents in history is Grant. And Grant was a hero in his time. You know, he was, besides George Washington, maybe the, the most beloved figure, the most beloved general. You know, he won the Civil War. He became president. He did a lot to, um, in terms of uh, civil rights for African-Americans. And then when you get into the 20th century, the Daughters of the Confederacy kind of rewrote history a little bit. And Grant is this idiot for 30, 40, 50. You know, when I grew up in the 80s, you know, all I knew he was was a drunk guy who wasn't good. And it turns out now we're seeing a renaissance of, you know, Ron Chernow's book. And someone was saying, no, actually, he was a really good man, made mistakes as president. They're, They're kind of... Correcting the history. So mm-hmm. you saw that with John Adams a little bit, that he, you know, McCullough's work, he kind of. So I do think history can go back and correct things better than when you're in the fog of war. Now, what's going to be interesting is because of social media, have narrative, narratives hardened so much in people's minds that those can't be corrected when there's new facts. I, I don't really know, but it's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, time and distance can certainly have an effect, but you know, within, in the moment, everybody, social media incentivizes everyone to weigh in immediately on what is happening right now, yeah. where by the very nature of it, you don't have all the information of what is going on. Yeah. And there is a human nature problem that comes into it, which is if you study um, forms of argumentation and when you try to dissuade someone from the opinion that they have, usually the harder you argue against the position they have, they're not persuaded to change their mind. They become more entrenched in what they have already said because they feel they need to defend it. Yeah. So the, the immediacy of social media, I think, hardens us hardens some people into uh, more intransigent positions than they would otherwise take. Yeah, and I also that's a great point, and I am ner- I am worried about that. Um, and it, it's f- interesting when I look back on nine eleven, for instance. I was uh, twenty three on nine eleven, and one of the things I'm grateful for is that there was no social media. So we we all kind of um, we all kind of watched the same thing happen. We all watched TV, and we all saw everything happen at the same time. And we had a shared experience about what was happening. And that's, that's why I think, besides George Bush's leadership and bringing the country together, but that's why I think at least in the first few months, and I think, you know, kind of before the Iraq war went haywire, there was a great sense of unity and purpose in the country, uh, togetherness, because we all had a shared tragedy and a shared understanding of what happened. But if you had, you had social media during 9-11 – we immediately would have went into our corners. We would have immediately been blind. And that's kind of what's happened ever since. I do think that has torn away at some of the fabric that we're able now to process news in real time and have opinions on it before we even know what's happening, right? So if COVID happens 20 years ago, are we as divided about it? I don't know. You know, at the same time, you know, social media has flattened it to where we hear voices that maybe we wouldn't have heard before that are important. So, you know, I think it's interesting. Do you think that social media stretches the extremes of the good and the bad that's out there? So I'm thinking of, you know, you have these mobs that can form instantly to ruin someone's life. And I think the first, certainly not the very first, but I think the first clear example most people can remember was Justine Sacco, Mm -hmm. who tweets a very tasteless joke about AIDS while getting on a flight to South Africa. And uh, trending on Twitter is, you know, has Justine landed yet? Mm -hmm. And she lands in South Africa. And the next thing she knows, she's lost her job. You see these kinds of piling on, you see this, um, you know, if you even if you don't say anything, where like if you didn't post the black square on Instagram in support of Black Lives Matter, people ask like, well, why aren't you expressing? Why aren't you speaking out about this? Why aren't you offering your opinion? So on one side you have these mobs, and on another side you have the ability to elevate incredible things out there. Yes. I mean, everybody's seen viral videos of beautiful stories, or even sometimes in response to people acting terrible. If you uh, recall the Target Tory story of someone who clearly tried to um, create an incident at a Target and a manager got put in an awful position to say that, no, this toothbrush is actually not priced at one cent. And the online community comes together to be like, we should send her on vacation. And they raised like a hundred thousand dollars to send this woman on vacation. Some got donated to charity and you know, she, but 
even in that respect, she becomes kind of an internet celebrity. Does the platform seem to like be stretching the extremes of both the good and the bad we see out there? I think so. I mean, it's obviously, it's just everyone's connected and and right away can, um, you know, can facilitate that. So, you know, right away we can jump on uh, something happening. One of the biggest inventions, I think, that has kind of gotten overlooked is the ability to take uh, pictures and photographs with your phone. I think that changed everything, right? Because now you can film the idiot in Alaska who's berating a Walmart greeter because he doesn't want to wear a mask, you know, and everyone's retweeting and saying, come on, just wear the mask, right? Which makes sense. Just like, come on, dude. Mm -hmm. But it also, it kind of nationalizes local issues, right? Should he wear a mask? Yes. Is he being a jerk? Yes. Should he be kicked out of the store? Probably. But what will end up happening is more than that because he'll be famous. He might lose his job. Who knows what other, like, the, the punishment sometimes doesn't fit the crime. Like, because like you said, it, it stretches the extremes mm-hmm. that we can all just pile on. And be, and underneath the piling on of, of the idiot in Alaska that doesn't wear a mask, underneath our desire to quote tweet that and say, can you believe this, what these people have to deal with and all that, and, and making that go viral. Underneath it is us declaring before the world, I'm not this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm better than this guy. I may be bad, but I'm better than this guy. So I think we have to see those motivations. But but it does stretch the extreme. It, it makes you think that in every Walmart in America, there's some clown yelling at clerks. When the truth is, in most stores, people are going in there and they're putting their mask on whether they like it or not. And they're, and they're cooperating. Right. And in every society, um, you're always going to have a percentage of nonconformists that are going to do that. It's actually exaggerated to the point where it's almost a narrative now that that there's a significant portion of the population that's not wearing masks. But then when they do studies, it's like 90%. So even the people who hate masks and all that and talk about on Facebook are wearing them to the stores. Mm -hmm. So it exaggerates that, oh gosh, every store and every clerk's facing this. Um, But then it also has great capacity for good. Like you said, like uh, I had a, a friend of mine that I wasn't that close with, but fairly close. And he, he uh, got killed tragically in a, in a car accident, you know, trying to save somebody about a month and a half ago in Texas. And one of my friends that really knew him, you know, the story kind of circulated online. And then one of my friends put up a GoFundMe for his w- widow and three kids. And it was extraordinary. Like they had a dollar amount goal and it, they had to keep setting a new limit and people were donating that never knew him. And so there's extraordinary capacity for good. Mm-hmm. There's extraordinary capacity to highlight human goodness. So I do think you do get an outsized view of both human goodness and human depravity on the platform. I think it was Megan McArdle who said that you know, social media at its worst exists basically like the worst parts of living in a small town without the benefits because everybody's in everyone else's business and you can see something that's happening like you said 3000 miles away mm-hmm. where you don't know this person you don't you've never been there before you probably never will go there in your life uh, and yet it feels so immediate and so near and then the the other side of that is what you just illustrated that someone who you've never met whose story you don't know you 
see just incredible charity from people uh, who otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to know the story or to be charitable in that situation. Um, I, w- I want to ask you a bit about, uh, as a parent myself, um, what do you think the impact social media is having on younger people is? Because um, it's it, it gives them the ability, especially at this time where you've got people who are locked in houses during quarantines, another venue for people to help communicate with each other. But I, I think there's some evidence, too, that it is creates a great amount of anxiety out there. I think we've mm-hmm. seen a 56% rise in the teen suicide rate between mm-hmm. 2007 and uh, 2017, whereas back when you and I were in high school, if you didn't get invited to the big party, you found out about it on Monday morning, whereas now these people can watch it happen in real time, something that they're being left out of. Um, what, what do you think the impact social media is having on younger people? And, and how do you think we're as a society in, in general are handling it? I am really concerned about the impact on younger people, um, which is why, you know, my daughter, I don't let her do Twitter or Facebook. Um, she's, I think she does Instagram, but it's a private account because I, I don't, I don't know, like I'm a 42 year old adult and I'm nervous sometimes about getting on the wrong side of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, I do not like the, what it, what it can do to teens for a number of reasons. One, you know, the very art and act of having a profile on social media means you're on stage, you're in public and you're, you're always a sense that you have to be performing. And I don't think it's good for teens, mental health teens that are not fully developed, fully mature emotionally. Um, there's a, it creates a kind of jealousy, uh, about, um, you know, how many likes do I have, you know, approval, uh, somebody described it that they said, um, you know, when you were in high school, 20 years ago, 30 years ago or whatever, you know, the, the locker room culture or the, the hall, the, 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 the hallway can be rough, you know, in terms of if you're not one of the cool kids or whatever, and, and, you know, junior high, high school can be hard anyways, right? The peer pressure and all that, but then you can go home and be free of all that. But now they say that the locker room, the, the break room, the peer pressure never goes away. Because social media cr- creates that environment, and if you think about Twitter, Twitter is kind of like it's kind of like a high school. It's kind of like the, even the way the adults act. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I, I'm really concerned about its impact on. I, I, I don't know the wisdom of letting kids use use it. TikTok can be fairly seems like fairly. Um, although I'm I'm concerned about the uh, you know the ties to China, but. Now there's the one on Instagram that they have, uh, but like, you know, making videos and stuff, but I, I'm still really nervous about it. And I also don't, I don't like it because the adults don't behave on social media and there's an impulse to want to find it, uh, behavior we don't like and just embarrass people and crush people. Right. Like right. every day I'm thinking, when I wake up, I'm thinking, who's Twitter going to crush today? You know, and just like, okay, the video of that person in Walmart, not putting a mask on. That guy is bad, but should we be taking videos of local issue, local people without their consent and putting it online in order to mock them? And heaven forbid that was a teenager, 
and the internet comes crushing down on them, I, that dynamic really makes me nervous. What I tell people is once it's online, it's permanent. So you got a teenager who's tweeting stream of consciousness. Well, 20 years ago, someone's going to dig those up and find them and embarrass you. And we've seen that, right? You know, some kid gets drafted on draft day. It's his best day of his life. And some reporter with nothing else to do finds tweets from 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't think is helpful either. And I don't like the whole let's dig up old tweets and embarrass people thing. I I remember years ago uh, speaking at a career day for a community college in the Chicago area. And I had asked ahead of time because they wanted me to talk about social media and ahead of time asking for the names of the people who would be attending. And I found social media accounts online and I censored out the, the name and the images with all of that. But I put up examples of some of the more choice things that I found mm. just to drive home the point of if I could find it in 30 minutes, the potential employer you could be interviewing with is going to find them very easily. Yes. The Internet is for, forever and you need to remember that in everything that you decide to put on there in some way is going to live forever, even if you delete it. It, it is still gonna, going to be findable. Um, I want to ask you, since the title of your book is Using Our Online Conversations for Good, maybe we can conclude here. What advice do you have for people in how they can endeavor to be their best selves and use, if they're going to use social media, use it for good rather than for some of the nastiness that we've talked about already? Yeah, so I have a, here's a few thoughts. Number one, Let's not compartmentalize social media from, from us. So social media is us. And so I can't change what a lot of folks are doing, but I can, I can change me and the people over whom I have influence. And so um, this is where people are engaging. So asking myself, how can I use this in a responsible way? How can I use this to bring uh, joy and, 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 and do this in a way that speaks up, is courageous, but also highlights the true and the good and the beautiful. So ask yourself that. Number two, I would say James 119 is great uh, advice for us. James says, let, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Uh, we might say in this age, let everyone be quick to read the whole story, slow to post, and slow to internet rage. Slow down. I mean, I think commit to saying, I'm going to get the whole story I'm going to find out what's going on before I comment and post. Um, the story could change in 24 hours. I'm not, I'm, you know, committing to not spreading false information or just not getting ahead of things. Uh, I think number three is just recognizing that when I'm in on social media, I'm in public. And so people are watching me. If I have a significant platform, I think I'm responsible for the way that I manage that. And I don't want to, by my tone or by, by the way, I interact, give permission to other people <clears throat> to act the same way. Um, I would say number four, uh, just asking myself, you know, thinking through before, before I tweet or post that, you know, how could this be misunderstood? How could someone, you know, how could someone read this and get something else? I, I actually think we can have good engagements online. I think we can stand up for the truth. We can stand up for what we believe in. We can have it be an exchange of ideas. But I also think we could do it in a civil way. And I think committing ourselves that the person that I'm interacting with, um, 
I may not agree with them. Uh, they may be wrong, but can I still interact with them in a way that recognizes that they're a human being, that they have dignity and worth and value, uh, that people are not the sum total of their opinions and their ideas. They're whole people. And I think if we could do that, we could have good engagement. Um, I actually think we can have disagreements and back and forth conversations if they're in good faith. And this is where I think we just have to be wise and say, the person I'm disagreeing with, are they arguing in good faith? Am I doing that? Uh, if not, if they're just a troll or they're trolling me, or I'm, then it's not worth my time. But I think we can do this, do it and do it well. I, I actually think social media can be used for good. I don't think it's all bad. I think this is the age in which we live. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to use these tools uh, in a good way? Daniel Darling is the Senior Vice President for Communications at National Religious Broadcasters and author of the new book, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. Dan, thanks so much for being a part of Act In Line today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And again, I want to just say how much I appreciate Acton and all the great work that you do here. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.